The following message is a paid advertisement. Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves, while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And this week, I've got a story that I've been reporting on for the past few months on the growing prevalence of fentanyl, a situation that federal drug enforcement agents call the deadliest crisis they've ever seen in their agency's history. How is it affecting Nevada? And how are lawmakers, harm reduction advocates, policy experts, and law enforcement all trying to tackle this issue? For this story, I talked to more than 20 people, from recovering addicts to the DEA to doctors and lawyers all striving to reduce the devastating impact fentanyl has had in the Silver State. It's a pretty vast and complex issue, with sides fighting over the right way to stop the death that this drug so often brings. Fentanyl is different. Fentanyl is in most drugs. Fentanyl is in our communities. Fentanyl is a problem. Fentanyl can potentially kill. Fentanyl is being utilized for drug trafficking. We're seeing fentanyl in a lot of cases. Fentanyl is a crisis. Some lawmakers want to crack down on fentanyl, but Nevada labs struggle to accurately measure how much of the substance is in any given sample. Advocates want to make it safer to use the drug, but others say drug use should be eliminated completely, not made safer. And the main bills seeking to tackle the problem this legislative session are based on a recommendation that isn't unanimously supported by a committee seeking to solve the problem. There's a lot of misinformation and hyperbole around fentanyl, And while all this is basically impossible to distill down in this podcast, I do hope that you walk away from this with a fuller understanding of the issue and the proposed solutions around it. And I also hope you walk away with more empathy for those struggling with addiction and those on the front lines trying to save lives and rehabilitate some of the most vulnerable in our society. Okay, so before diving into this story, I want to present the context for why we are doing this story now. In 2022, fentanyl was tied to nearly two-thirds of the 100,000 drug overdoses recorded in the United States. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. There are currently two major fentanyl-related bills going through the legislature here in Nevada, Senate Bill 35 and Senate Bill 343. Both are sponsored by Democrats and look to make possession of certain amounts of fentanyl a felony drug trafficking charge with the idea being to get dealers off the streets and to disrupt the supply and sale of the illegal fentanyl in the region. There are also a lot of other bills that have been proposed too by Republicans in the state Senate, as well as Republican Governor Joe Lombardo, but in a democratically controlled legislature, it's difficult for those bills to get much traction. Some of those bills were similar to these presented by Democrats, but with different weight tolerances, and some had a zero tolerance approach for fentanyl. On top of the two bills that have been gaining momentum, Governor Joe Lombardo has made it a talking point of his to tackle the fentanyl crisis we are facing. Fentanyl, possession in any amount, should be a Category B felony. (laughs) Addressing these problem areas will have an immediate effect on reducing crime and helps ensure the effectiveness of our public safety and criminal justice systems. So with that context, let's dive into our story. Part one, an epidemic. 
In 2008, Ryan Mills was at the top of his game. He had just gotten a deal to be sponsored by Monster Energy Drink as a BMX rider. He was 18. As a kid, I uh, was like really interested in BMX, freestyle BMX, which is a pretty dangerous sport. And I got injured quite a bit. It just comes with riding. Ryan had been having knee troubles and had been taking prescription pills for about two years to manage the pain. Started off real low, was lower tab, Vicodin, then it went to Percocet, then it went to Roxycontin, and it went to Oxycontin, and then eventually to heroin and that kind of thing. Ryan started using heroin because it was easier and cheaper to come across than prescription opioids. Ryan traveled the world doing what he loved, riding his bike. He did this while also going to college and supporting what had become a drug habit. By the time I was like 16, I had knee surgery. So um, by the time I broke my wrist, the knee pain was consistent because I had knee surgery and then the wrist pain. And from there, I started getting prescriptions like every month and referred to like a pain management doctor. So the prescriptions just kept going for years and was getting like a decent paycheck and then getting photos in magazines and getting photo contingency money. I'm Ryan Mills and this is how to do a 180 hand plant. You want to put your bike over the spine while you're taking your hand off. All that kind of happened at the same time. Like my money was going up as my drug use was going up. So I was, the money was just going straight into drug use and basically probably helped fuel the downfall of my career at the same time. The potency of it kept raising up because, you know, you get kind of used to something and your tolerance goes up. So before I knew it, I was just like kind of full-blown stuck on the pills. By the time Ryan started college, he began to encounter fentanyl from time to time. Fentanyl in its medical form is a prescription drug used to treat acute pain and serious illness. It's about 100 times stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. The CDC reports that from April 2020 to April 2021, there were estimated to be more than 100,000 drug overdose deaths, which was up more than 28% from the previous year. More than 75,000 of those deaths were due to opioids. And in 2020, it's estimated that 82% of all opioid-involved deaths were caused by fentanyl. And that's expected to go up from 2021 to 2022 and 2023. One time in Portland, I, I had nothing and found out this cancer patient had fentanyl patches. And so we bought them and we did that. I was like asleep for three days. It was like this crazy thing. I just like got so sick from it. It was likely an OD, but because uh, I OD'd a couple times like towards the end and didn't go to the hospital or anything, just had friends like prop me up on my side and let me lay there. Before I knew it, I wasn't even riding a bike anymore and I was in full time, like, where can I find drug mode? Drug crises are nothing new in the United States. They go as far back as the 1800s. Like today, several past drug epidemics were started by doctors and drug manufacturers that advertised and sold drugs to the public that were addictive and could be dangerous if not used for their intended medical treatment. In the 1800s, there was the opium epidemic, 
followed by the morphine epidemic, which became a problem when Civil War soldiers became addicted to it during and after the war. If you skip ahead a few decades, amphetamines became popular in post-World War II America as they were prescribed to treat a number of ailments. And in 1971, Nixon declared the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. An effort to tackle the problem through increased penalties for possession, aggressive legal enforcement, and foreign policy intervention. Today, that's widely seen as a failed effort, although some groups still support approaches from that era, calling for stiff penalties that target drug users. Then there was the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s and 90s, and a legal response that accelerated the war on drugs, largely targeting marginalized minorities and the poor. And then finally, we have the opioid epidemic, which has been morphed and transformed into the fentanyl crisis we're facing today. Now policymakers on the state and federal levels are looking at how to respond to it without repeating the mistakes of the past amid an increasing need to act. So fentanyl belongs to a class of drugs known as opioids. An opioid refers to a pain-relieving drug that attaches itself to an opioid receptor in your brain that dampens the perception of pain in your body and increases a feeling of relaxation and pleasure. Those euphoric effects make opioids good at relieving pain, but can also make them dangerous and addictive. At lower prescribed doses, they can make you feel sleepy or lethargic, but taking higher doses can be deadly. Opioids occur naturally in things like poppy seeds, but can also be made in labs. These are called synthetic opioids, and that's what fentanyl is. Medical fentanyl is oftentimes prescribed using a patch that will release the drug into the patient slowly. Now, illicit fentanyl can be taken as a pill, smoked, snorted, or injected. Oftentimes, people don't even realize they're doing fentanyl and instead think that they're taking an illicit drug such as heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, or something else, or even a legal drug that they bought illegally like Oxycontin off the street. Okay, so we know that fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, but how exactly does it kill people? Fentanyl is such a potent opioid that it causes central nervous system depression. And so what happens is that it basically depresses the brain such that you stop breathing. And that's a respiratory arrest, typically. The breathing stops and then the heart will stop after that, sometime after that, once the heart muscle gets low on oxygen. That was Dr. Laura Knight, the chief medical examiner and coroner at the Washoe County Regional Medical Examiner's Office. We're also seeing people, though, who die very quickly from fentanyl. And so it's, it's suspected there may be other ultra-rapid mechanisms. There may be sudden respiratory paralysis, for example. As little as two milligrams can be a lethal dose, according to the Drug Enforcement Agency. To put that into perspective, that's less than the weight of a small mosquito or feather. Your phone probably weighs about 200 grams, which is enough fentanyl to kill 100,000 people. While two milligrams is minuscule, it can take a higher dose to kill someone depending on the person's tolerance. Someone who's been using opioids for a long time can have a much higher tolerance. Here's Ryan again. Tolerance grows too. So that's why like a lot of the people are doing fentanyl all the time. They're not ODing, but people getting it in like a pressed pill that don't do fentanyl, they're ODing like that time, you know? So like a lot of the kids that are like partying and getting pills and parties, they're taking it and just dying. So this is a story that we've heard a lot in the media. A teenager goes to a party and takes a pill, not knowing what it is or not knowing what's in it, and they die from an overdose. When I was in college, this happened to someone that I knew from high school. 
They were a high-achieving student, an athlete, they had scholarships, and a bright future ahead of them. I didn't know them well, but it was a scary wake-up call that this really could happen to anyone. It, it was the first death I can think of from my high school class, and it was a pretty sobering moment. There are stories like that, and there are also stories like Ryan's. Someone goes to doctor for pain, they are prescribed opioid-based pain pills, something like Oxycontin, but they're given more than they need. That leads to them using more than they should and perhaps using cheaper and more readily available drugs if and when they run out of their prescribed doses. I talked to Dr. Robin Titus about this, a Republican in the Nevada Senate. She's one of the 63 state lawmakers in Carson City who's voting on bills that are trying to fight the opioid crisis. She's also a doctor in Smith Valley in rural western Nevada and is closely involved in public health issues as a Lyon County health officer. For medical providers, Titus said there is always a tension and balance between how many drugs to prescribe for treating pain. You know, we give them a seven-day supply where they have an acute injury or fracture, but give them 60 of them that they only needed five. But we've done a substantial amount of change in how we as prescribers look at patients, we, you know, and we went too far. And, and unfortunately, the laws will do that. The pendulum swings, right? At first, we were prescribing too much, and then the law changed, and then we wouldn't prescribe any. And the patients were suffering, truly were suffering because we were we reeled back in so dramatically on what we were prescribed for chronic pain that the patients were having pain. And so we as providers had to be more accountable, not only to recognize legitimate pain versus giving too much. We were told, you know, the pain is the fifth vital sign, right? And so if somebody's in pain and at the time, doctors were being sued for not treating pain. So what do you do, right? And again, that pendulum swings. And then as we reeled that back in and these prescriptions became harder to get, the overdose deaths continued to skyrocket. And that's the biggest thing we're facing today with fentanyl use. It's how much overdose deaths are going up. In Washoe County alone, there's more than a 450% increase in fentanyl-related overdose deaths from 2019 to 2022, according to the coroner. It's cheaper than heroin and dramatically more powerful than heroin. We've had different conversations on this. This is my fifth session. Every session I've been here since my first one in 2015, we talked about overdoses, addiction. What I see happen over the COVID, we definitely had a dramatic increase in overdoses and certainly depression. Between 2019 and 2022, there was a 58% increase in drug-related deaths in Washoe County. Dr. Knight, the Washoe County coroner, said it goes up and up a little more every year. Most of the increase has been due to fentanyl. Prior to 2019, we saw fentanyl pretty rarely. It was only, for the most part, when we had suicide cases where someone had applied purposefully multiple fentanyl patches in order to die, or occasionally fentanyl accidents where people had misused fentanyl patches. And now, you know, the tremendous increase that we're seeing, we're seeing it because fentanyl, of course, is out in our illicit drug supply in the community now. So fentanyl used by medical professionals is often used to treat chronic severe pain. You'll often hear of cancer patients who get it. The thing is that most fentanyl that people are dying from now is not from the hospital and is not synthesized in regulated laboratories. People may be buying it thinking it's something else, like methamphetamine or heroin, and they end up getting something that also has fentanyl in it. So people are buying these usually as powders. And then the powder can be snorted. It can be heated, like on foil and inhaled. It can be smoked and it can be injected as well. The most common form of fentanyl that is being seen in the illicit market right now is pressed pills. 
we call them pressed because that's how you make a tablet or a pill, right? Is pressing a powder. Um, and pills are basically made to look like prescription pills and can be considered like counterfeits. And for a while, we were seeing a lot of counterfeit pills made to look like oxycodone. Prescription medications usually have stamps on them, like special number and letter codes. And we were seeing a lot that were stamped with M30, which is what's normally on oxycodone. And so people may have thought they were buying oxycodone, of course, not prescribed again, but but illicitly. And then we're getting more than they bargained for because there was actually sentinel in those M30 pills, not oxycodone. And sentinel, of course, is many, many times more potent. And even someone who regularly abuses oxycodone would be susceptible to a sentinel overdose. So oftentimes, but not always, people are buying a drug that they think is a prescription pill or is heroin or cocaine. But it is either fentanyl or more likely there is fentanyl laced into another drug. You know, it's hard to tell exactly what's happening with it sometimes. A huge issue is gaps in data and a lack of data altogether. Since it's an illicit substance, the data and testing can sometimes be more difficult to generate and interpret. We do see fentanyl by itself sometimes, but often we're seeing fentanyl and methamphetamine together or fentanyl and cocaine. Very much less common to see fentanyl and heroin. Heroin has really become much less popular here, maybe because fentanyl has pushed it out of the market. But fentanyl plus a stimulant is really common. So yes, we're seeing it mixed. And I, I think that is the case that people are buying a drug and, and thinking it's one thing and getting a mixture. When it comes to using opioids regularly, it's hard to just stop cold turkey. One of the reasons opioids are so addictive is that people start experiencing withdrawal symptoms if they stop taking them after prolonged use. It starts out like you get high, you kind of nod off, you feel the high for a couple hours, and then within like four or six hours, you start feeling like just like a little restlessness in your legs and you start to feel like kind of skin crawling. Your common sense kind of goes away as you're like getting high and you will kind of accept things in life that you wouldn't normally do. But yeah, by 2006, I felt my first withdrawal and I was just like, oh, I didn't really realize how bad that was going to be. You go a couple more hours and you start to get a runny nose and then you start to get fever and then shaky. And then, so if you go eight hours from a high, you like start to need it. Otherwise you're not feeling right. But if you go a day, you're just like kind of pooping your pants and throwing up and hot and cold and wet, cold sweats. And it's just, yeah, it's a miserable time. You can't find heroin anymore. It's just, just fentanyl because people, you know, it's cheaper and more effective and stronger than heroin. Part two, the bills. Fentanyl is a growing problem in our communities and a big question is lurking in the background. What can policymakers do about it? Nicole Cannizzaro, the top Democrat in the Nevada Senate, along with Nevada's Democratic Attorney General Aaron Ford, recently presented two bills that will try and tackle the fentanyl issue. Those are Senate Bill 35 and Senate Bill 343, the two bills that were mentioned at the start of the show. 
In a bill hearing, Senator Cannizzaro emphasized how pressing the issue is. While we don't necessarily have perfect statistics in Nevada on just how prevalent fentanyl is in our communities, mostly because we find it most are often are encountered with it because it is mixed with other substances. Um, and so that makes it very difficult to track specifically those pieces. But there is no doubt that we are seeing an unprecedented increase in opioid overdoses and deaths that can be attributed to fentanyl. You don't have to look very hard to find that. There are plenty of unfortunate stories that we have heard from so many families. And so just by way of example, from July to August of 2022, that is just one month, that's one month here in Nevada, we saw a 66% increase in opioid-related emergency room visits. From January to July of 2022, Clark County alone saw an estimated 1,412 opioid-related overdoses. And since 2019, statewide opioid overdoses deaths due to fentanyl have increased by 227 percent. The bills from Cannizzaro and Ford would target the possession of fentanyl greater than four grams and put it into a category separate from other drugs. What that means is harsher punishment for those found to have fentanyl. The legislation would also make it easier for law enforcement and prosecutors to go after those who sell and distribute the drug. The reason there are two bills is to differentiate between low, mid, and high-level trafficking charges. Low-level is more than 4 grams and less than 14 grams, mid-level is 14 to 28 grams, and a high-level charge is anything exceeding 28 grams of fentanyl. One thing that they kept talking about over and over in the hearing is that people possessing this amount of fentanyl aren't using it for daily use and are most likely selling it. Here's Attorney General Aaron Ford during one of the bill hearings. We've secured hundreds of of millions of dollars in opioid settlements for the state since I took office. Ford and his office have sued opioid manufacturers for their role in the addiction crisis and have secured tons of money for the state from those lawsuits. State leaders now have to allocate that money, much of which must be used to directly address the damage done by the prevalence of opioids. In 2021, the legislature created the Statewide Substance Use Response Working Group. That committee that Ford mentioned is called the Surge Committee. Its members review how the state is addressing drug problems, and they issued several recommendations to help with the fentanyl crisis. Unanimously, the committee recommended things like improving data collection, as well as a slew of other prevention and mitigation techniques. There was one recommendation, though, that was not unanimous. Here is the attorney general again talking about that recommendation. Yes, those recommendations also included revising the penalties for trafficking in fentanyl. A bill, this bill is is what I'm presenting to you today. The only vote for this recommendation to make laws around fentanyl stricter in order to deter and target drug dealers was the one recommendation of the Surge Committee that was not unanimously agreed on. Here's John Pirro, a public defender with Clark County that I sat down with and who testified against the bills. There was a whole Nevada plan for opioids. Not one point in that extensive 180 pages had this solution in it. Not a single page of that had this solution in it. When asked for comment over email, Ford's spokesperson said the search committee recommended the general language that ultimately became the bill, and that there was no requirement the committee makes its recommendation unanimously, but that Ford will continue to hear concerns about the bill. The attorney general's spokesperson went on to say, quote, fentanyl is an extraordinarily dangerous drug that can and does kill with regularity, and it cannot be treated the same as other narcotics due to its considerable public health hazard. 
Attorney General Ford is considering both public safety and public health in his discussion around Senate Bill 35. He has been clear that the bill is not intended to go after those suffering from addiction or to use incarceration as rehabilitation. The bill is intended to remove a substance from the street that is killing Nevadans by targeting those who are trafficking in this substance. Unquote. Moreover, the surge committee, which allegedly this bill came from, this was the only non-unanimous provision brought on, and it was brought on by law enforcement. This was a law enforcement-driven solution. And frankly, we've been doing law enforcement-driven solutions on the war on drugs, and I don't have anything negative to say because they want to work to make the community better. But unfortunately, the proposed solutions that they've been using for years and years and years, we still have these issues. If we could prosecute our way out of this, if we could arrest our way out of this, we would have done it. So some said that the legislation would essentially bring back the era of the war on drugs, an era of tough on crime policies that effectively criminalized anyone in possession of an illicit drug, whether they were addicted to the substance or whether they were dealers. I spoke with Senator Cannizzaro about that criticism. I do not believe that this is like the war on drugs. And, and listen, I completely understand those concerns. This is a very different substance. And I think because of the prevalence that we're seeing it being, you know, taken into our communities and the number of deaths that are coming from this, and even just the anecdotal evidence, I think I mentioned that during the hearing as well, even anecdotal evidence from families who have lost people because of a fentanyl overdose, we have to do something. And so for me, this is not the same approach. We are not trying to take the same approach. We're much more informed about how those kinds of decisions can affect policy and ultimately individuals. And I think that we have the science and, and some of the data to back it up. And I asked Senator Canizaro about that data that's backing up this bill. Does it show that the approach taken in the bills presented by her and Ford would actually help the problem? The struggle with something like that is that we just don't have a lot of great data, again, until we're looking at overdose or we're looking at deaths. So does Nevada have the data it needs to create policy? Yes and no. We'll get more into that in a minute. Overdose Data to Action is an organization that helps collect data on drug use to inform prevention and response efforts. Elise Monroy is their program manager. She said one of the reasons we don't have good data is that the crime labs don't see public health as their mission. The crime labs as they currently exist believe that their purpose and their role is to serve a criminal justice system. They've told okay. me we're not public health. We're not supposed to help you. We're not supposed to share data with you, which is unfortunate because data that we pull from seized drugs or from DUI testing can tell us a lot about what is in the drug supply. Okay, so the data propping up SB 35 and SB 343 is not as complete as it could be because of interagency bureaucracy. And Elise said the criminal justice and law enforcement side is not sharing data with the public health side. So let's talk about this for a second. In Nevada, there are regional crime labs that work with law enforcement to test things like seized drugs. The crime labs here are just sharing information with law enforcement, and law enforcement isn't sharing the data they get on tested drugs with harm reduction specialists or public health officials. 
Hence, the groups that are working to do harm reduction are not entirely up to speed on all the data on drugs on the street unless they get it from the coroner's office after someone has died from a drug overdose. And this is something that I found really interesting. Nevada is also the only state without a statewide crime lab, meaning there is no centralization for getting seized drugs tested and shared with concerned parties. Without that centralization, lab testing isn't standardized and the data isn't consistent between different labs. But it doesn't have to be done that way, Elise said. Statewide crime labs in other states are sharing data with public health. Minnesota actually has a model where when they have somebody that comes into the hospital on a suspected fentanyl overdose, they send someone who's a certified peer support specialist to talk that person through whatever they're going through. And then there's a courier service that takes part of that, either the blood or the urine sample, and sends it to the state public health lab to test if it's fentanyl. So we're not doing anything like that here. In California, there's a, a local jurisdiction that is using data from their crime lab. They're looking at like DUI data and they've just been appalled at how many people are driving under the influence of fentanyl. So mm. all of that is information that exists in Nevada. So like the DUI data, that data exists in Nevada now. We could and should be getting it for public health, but we're not. So you're saying that the, the law enforcement and the public health are siloed from each other and they're not sharing information with each other. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Part three, on the ground. To hear what's happening on the ground of Nevada, I sat down with members of the Las Vegas Office of the Drug Enforcement Administration, better known as the DEA, to talk about how they're tackling the fentanyl crisis. Here's Assistant Special Agent Kevin Adams, who oversees the Las Vegas and Reno DEA offices. Fentanyl in particular is, as our administrator said, is the most deadliest crisis we've ever seen in the history of DEA. Our lab has seen that six out of 10 tablets, six out of 10 tablets have a potentially deadly dosage of fentanyl in them. In Nevada, we've seized last year 811,000 fed pills that contain fentanyl. We can see the issue based upon the volume of fentanyl pills that we have seized, based upon the prominence of our investigations targeting fentanyl distribution organizations, and then also by the amount of drug-related overdose that we're seeing in Clark County and also in the North. So a question a lot of people may also be asking is where are these drugs coming from? How are they even getting into our communities? Our main distribution points for fentanyl are going to be Phoenix and Los Angeles to the cartels, the Sinaloa cartel and also CJNG are the two main Mexican drug cartels that are pumping fentanyl into the United States. And then also with a bigger scope, we're looking also from an agency level, looking at the, the precursor chemicals coming out of China. The crisis has evolved from the overdistribution of prescription painkillers in the early 2000s and 2010s. Here's Christy Nielsen, the DEA intelligence research specialist in Las Vegas, who's on Agent Adams' team. Basically, the cartels in Mexico run as a business model. They know where the proceeds and the profit is going to be made, and they saw that there was a demand for pills in the U.S. after the opioid epidemic. And... Unfortunately, you know, they're not under the strict, stringent controls that 
legitimate fentanyl is manufactured in? Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. There's not a growing season. It can be manufactured year round. You can keep the same level of mass production 12 months out of the year. I also asked about the dangers and high fatality rates of fentanyl. Wouldn't it be in the best interest of any drug dealer not to kill their buyers? Why are they utilizing fentanyl when they know it's killing some of their customer base and they simply don't care? What they're trying to do is drive addiction and increase their profit margin. And if it costs lives to do so, they could care less. As long as they're making money off of it, which they are. So most of the efforts right now for the federal government are put into stopping Mexican drug cartels from getting those drugs into the hands of American citizens who are getting addicted to and dying from opioids, with fentanyl being the new preferred drugs for cartels to sell. Republicans in particular have been vocal about the need to cut the supply off at the border. Here's Senator Titus talking about the border. So now you will hear that the market coming across the border, so open borders, that's what's coming across. The cartels are really in charge there. I, I have no, no beef with looking to better their lives, better their families' lives. So that's not where my beef is. My beef is with the cartels that are coming across and bringing these drugs that are killing, killing people. It's true that cartels are bringing the drugs into America. But border control is not quite the cure-all that some may think it is. In fact, 86% of fentanyl trafficking along the U.S.-Mexican border has been from U.S. citizens, according to data from the United States Sentencing Commission. Here's Agent Adams again. I think border security is always a key component, but that is not the only problem that, that our border defense is not going to stop all drugs from coming in. I think that drug trafficking organizations has shown they will find a way to get their drugs to their targets or their consumers, whether it be by plane, train, boats, all type. I've seen every type of trafficking method you can think of. I just can't say that straight to the border and that resolves our problems. There's multiple steps along the way as far as getting the end result of community safety. Okay, so we've heard from federal law enforcement, but here is also another group that is seeing the effects of fentanyl firsthand on a more local level, and that is public defenders. Those are lawyers employed by the government who defend those who cannot afford a lawyer. Here's public defender John Pirro again. As far as on the ground goes with fentanyl, what we are seeing is that people are not seeking out fentanyl. What they are seeking out is a drug either for fun or to maintain their habit to survive before they get clean and they get help. And fentanyl is being laced in their drug. They are not seeking out to intentionally possess fentanyl. It is being put in their drugs. So here's an interesting thing, I think. I've heard a lot of conflicting information during my time reporting on this story. Are people actively seeking out fentanyl, or do they think that they're buying another drug when they're actually buying fentanyl or something laced with fentanyl? Here's the DEA again. There is a demand specifically for the fentanyl-laced fake prescription pills in the market. So people are like, I want fentanyl. They're, they're going out and asking specifically for fentanyl. Sometimes. There are, there, there are a number of people who had no idea they were taking one, a fake pill, and number two, that that pill was laced with fentanyl. But then there are some that are going after a specific pill that's laced because they're looking for a certain high. While the DEA argues that some people are actually seeking out fentanyl in particular, public defenders John Pirro and Erica Roth 
believe a much larger percentage of the population is looking to do illicit drugs and fentanyl can be laced in those drugs. We have clients who are overdosing. We have clients who do not want fentanyl in the substances that they are buying. And it's there, right? They're scared. It was a felony until 21 to even possess testing strips. A fentanyl testing strip is a strip that you can use to test your drugs to see if they have fentanyl in them. Think of it like the at-home COVID test that we were all using during the pandemic. But instead of telling you that you have COVID or not, it tells you if there is fentanyl present in a substance. Everybody should be concerned and everybody should be testing their drugs and being very careful about what they're doing, who they're doing it with, who they're buying it from. Hey, maybe you're a college student and you do want to experiment, but maybe you should think twice about what you're doing because this risk is out there. All of this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to fentanyl, opioids, and the illicit drug market in Nevada. They're all intertwined, and there is no solution that tackles one without impacting all three. It's a complex and nuanced issue, with addiction, heartbreak, and death around many of its jagged corners. SB 35 and SB 343 are not perfect solutions, and those presenting the bill will fully admit that, saying that they need to do something, though, in order to help with this issue. But some would also argue that they're not even solutions at all. In fact, taking the state backwards in an effort to address the fentanyl crisis. But we'll get into more of that in part two of this story next week. To wrap up, here's public defender Erica Roth and public defender John Pirro. Yes, I think fentanyl is a serious problem, but we also have to consider how people are talking about it and what the narrative has become around fentanyl. There is an idea that if you come in contact with fentanyl, in any minor way, you're going to overdose. It's incredibly dangerous. When you talk to experts, fentanyl is a very strong synthetic opioid. But this idea that if you were to inhale it or that it's in candy or anything like that is simply not true. There's a lot of research backing that up. It's a problem that's going to have to be dealt with. The real challenge is figuring out the right solution. Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part series on fentanyl in Nevada. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. This story was reported, produced, and edited by me. I had help editing this piece from my editors, Daniel Rothberg and Michelle Rundells, who I can't thank enough. There's a lot more to come next week, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association.